Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will continue teaching us from Genesis chapter 6 and 7 on the calling of Noah, and we will continue to study what God, Noah, and the world were doing before the flood occurred. Now, before we get started with our teaching from Genesis with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, we want to encourage you to sign up for Tom Cantor's daily devotional verse by email by going to our website, friendshipwithgod.org, or searching for us on Facebook by searching for Friendship with God. Now, Tom Cantor is our Bible teacher and the owner-operator of the Creation and Earth History Museum in San Diego, California. He's also a scientist, a biochemist, and because of that, we're offering two great resources, science and Bible-based, two books, Dinosaurs in the Bible and Your Origins Matter. These two great books, Dinosaurs in the Bible and Your Origins Matter, are amazing science and Bible-based books. They're your resources for a donation of $20 or more to the Friendship with God radio program. So call us now or after the program at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. Or go to our website, Friendship with God. Org, friendshipwithgod.org, order the Creation Museum website and bookstore at creationsd.org. That's creationsd.org. Now here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, on Friendship with God. Their reality was that when you close your eyes in death, they will never open again. That was the reality. The only problem was that in reality, everyone does open their eyes in either heaven or hell. The reality, they were very sincere. They believed very sincerely in their reality. It was real to them. And that's because they had made themselves the new not generation, willfully ignorant. You come down sometime to our company down in Tecate, Mexico. As you approach our building there, you come to our pathway that leads to the front door. And we call that El Camino de Gracia, the path to grace, something like that. And so when you start walking down that path, we have a a little bronze plaque in the uh, concrete as you enter that, and you walk down that pathway, and on your right, you'll see three stainless steel flames that are there. And we explain that in the future, the Bible says that he will destroy the earth with fire, as it says in the verse that should be open now to you in 2 Peter 3.10 where it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth and also the works therein shall be burned up. So that's why we have those stainless steel flames going there, because we tell them. This is all about this path. This is the Second Peter 3 path, if you want to call it that, although we don't say that. But anyway, that's what it's about, see? And we explain to them that by the word of God that this is going to happen, that there's going to be this terrible destruction by fire. And so then we explain to them that by the word of God, which was also responsible for creation, that not only is there going to be a judgment of fire, but we tell them that if you look on your left side of this pathway, you see a stand, and that is made out of sedimentary rock, and that we imported that from uh, the Sahara Desert in Morocco, and there are thousands of marine animals the fossilized marine animals in that stand. And on top of that stand is another piece of rock, a fossil, that was excavated from China. And on that rock, there are just tens of fishes that were fossilized in Noah's flood. 
And those fish, what's interesting about those fish is that they are all looking like they're in a school. You know, they're all like in lifelike positions, swimming around. And so you really have the sense as you will look at that fossil that those fish in a moment of time were trapped like that by a flood of sedimentary silt from Noah's flood that came. And we tell people all those fish were caught by surprise by the flood. And we tell them that was the new not generation of fish right there. They had no idea. I don't know if they have any idea, but anyway. So they were caught by surprise. So what we do is we point then to the fossils on the left on this path of grace. And we tell them that just as the passage, like we're looking at right now, in front of us right now in Second Peter says, that the past judgment of the flood occurred. And then we point to the stain the steel flames on the side, on the right side of the path. And we tell them that just like the passage says that you have in front of you now, we said, just like it says in 2 Peter 3, in verse 11, that there's going to be a coming judgment. See, past judgment by the Word of God. Coming judgment by the Word of God. Then we point down to the path that they're standing on, the path of grace, and we tell them that, thank God, the same passage in 2 Peter also says, right now, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, in the past, God judged the new not generation, the willfully ignorant generation with the flood. In the future, he will judge, as described here in 2 Peter, the ungodly men with fire. And so that was the judgment of the past, and that was the judgment of the future, and not the past, and not the future, but right now, God's not willing that any should perish. Right now, God's willing that all come to repentance. That's why we call it the path of grace. This is a time of grace. He wants to save. And then sometimes we address the issue, well, how come God didn't judge uh, Idi Amin, you know, and right away? Because God wanted to save Idi Amin. How come he didn't judge Adolf Hitler right away? Stop it. Because God wanted to save Adolf Hitler. It's true. So what was God doing in Noah's day? The world was being morally corrupt before God. They were making themselves willfully ignorant. They were making themselves the new not generation. They were creating their own reality that was not reality. Now that's described in the first part of the verse that we've looked at there. And that was their sinking deeper in corruption into a moral pit. And they were doing that before God, in the face of God. But the second part of this verse was what showing what the world was doing in Noah's day. And that's given to us where it says, it says, the earth was filled with violence. It's the first time in the Bible this word violence is used. It's the word Hamas, the same word that for the political party that sends all the rockets over, very violent party, good name for them, into Israel. And so the world was filled with Hamas. That's what happens when morality sinks to a new low. Violence blossoms up. This was, as you can see, in this verse, the earth was filled with violence, but literally it says the earth was filled with violence before them, before men. So before God, there was the moral corruption. Before men, there was the violence. That's what the earth was doing. Now we come to better news, and that was what was God doing during this time before the flood? We've seen already what the world was doing. Now, verse 12 tells us what God was doing. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted itself. God looked upon the earth. See, what was God doing? What God was doing is he was looking. 
It's what it says. He was looking on the earth. And then you see in verse 12 when it says, Behold, you know, it makes it seem like God was surprised. I mean, he's not surprised, but in one sense he is surprised. He's surprised to find what he found. What did he find? He found that man had horribly failed his charge, his commandment to shamar, to keep the earth. Because the earth was not what he expected. He didn't set up this earth for it to become like this. He set up the earth so that man would keep the earth holy. Keep the earth God-honoring. Keep the earth from being defiled. Keep the earth from becoming a loudspeaker from so many people's blood of their murderers than coming up in a deafening sound to God. So God, in essence, was saying, what happened? This word, behold, is very important. God is like, oh no, look at this, this is terrible. How come man has yielded himself to Satan? Instead of keeping and guarding against Satan, he's joined forces with him. Has totally let him have control. So even though this was the case, in verse 12, God looked upon the earth. When it says in verse 8 that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, that means that God had his eyes on the earth. We'll return with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, on Friendship with God in just one moment. Now, our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, is not just a teacher, pastor, scientist, CEO, and 2009 Whistleblower of the Year award recipient winner. He is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries, a Jewish evangelism ministry that has reached millions of lost Jewish people around the world, from the U.S. to South America to Israel and we've reached them with the gospel and Jewish materials so that they too might be saved. Now, Tom Cantor is a Jewish born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to reach other Tom Cantors that need to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We do that through free gospel gifts and messages that we offer for free. You can help us by supporting this Bible teaching radio program by calling us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. What's going on? Why did this world know not? Why are they shocked? Their reality, it was real to them. And that's because they had made themselves the new not generation. He set up the earth so that man would keep the earth holy. God was looking with his eyes on the earth for who he could show grace to. And he found the person in Noah. That's how come Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was looking with his eyes for who would stand alone for God during this time. He was looking with his eyes for whose soul would be vexed and troubled by the filthy lifestyle of those around him. Like that's the description of Paul. His soul was vexed with the filthy conversation. He was looking for those. God was doing exactly what it says in 2 Chronicles 16.9, where it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong, in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God was looking with his eyes on the earth. God was looking with his eyes on the earth back and forth on the earth. His eyes were running to and fro throughout the whole earth. That's what it says. Without stopping. 
the great concentration God has. He's going back and forth and back and forth and to and fro and to and fro. And he's asking who, where, let me find one man, one woman, one boy, one girl that's wholehearted for me. That's what he was doing. He was searching for that. Let me find one man, one woman, one boy, one girl that is 100% sold out for me, that's yearning for me with his, all of his heart and has got to have God. Let me find that person. And what does he do when he finds that person? What does it say he'll do when he finds that person? It says that he wants to show to the world. He wants to take that person and make him a trophy, a showcase for him. He'll show just how strong God can be for that person. He wants to show the world just how much God can help that person with strength. He wants to make that person an example of what it means for a person to be the temple of God. He wants the world to see that like Pharaoh saw and said of Joseph, can we find such a man in whom the Spirit of God is? That's what God wanted to do. He wanted to do that, to place himself within that person so that the world would see that's a man. That's a woman, that's a boy, that's a girl in whom the Spirit of God is. So the first thing that God was doing was looking with his eyes on the earth, scouring back and forth, looking for anyone who would repent of their sins, who would be vexed by sins, who would call out to God with all of his heart. The second thing that God was doing during Noah's day is seen in verse 3, Genesis 6, 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. We've covered that. For that he also is flesh. This part, yet his days shall be 120 years. God was giving man a space to repent. He said, when he said, yet his days shall be 120 years, God was saying, I have carved out for you 120 years, and I've labeled that a space to repent. That's a space for you to repent. He didn't say, now if you do this, I won't do it. But that's who God is. So he tells that's this time period as a space to repent. That's exactly what it says in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. That's what it means to be long-suffering, a space to repent. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to be saved. He was being long-suffering. He was giving man the space to repent. When God told Abraham that his people would be in Egypt for 400 years, he told them in a context that went like this in Genesis 15, 16. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Don't have the impression that God is sitting back there and says, oh, I just can't wait for them to fill up their cups so I can smash them. That's not God. God was saying this, that he was giving the Amorites a 400-year space to repent. That was the issue there. Why did God tell Abraham of that, about the 400 years? Because he was giving the Amorites a 400-year space to repent. When the Lord Jesus Christ was walking on his road of sorrows to the place where he was going to be crucified, there was following him a group of Jewish women, and they were crying, and what he did to them is very interesting in Luke 26, because this group of women he turned around and addressed. And it says this is what happened. As they led him away, they laid a hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. On him they laid the cross he might bear it after them. And there followed him a great company of people and of women. 
which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Let me think to yourself, how can he say weep not for me? I'm just a man that's condemned. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be tortured up there. Can't even hardly walk. Someone has to carry his cross. He said, don't weep for me. He said, weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. See, he told them, don't cry for me because I see what's going to happen to you and to your children and you need to cry for yourself and for your children. He said the judgment was going to come to Jerusalem and it would be so bad that people would beg mountains to kill them. He said, that's how bad it's going to be. And that's exactly what happened. How long? 40 years. From the time of his crucifixion until Titus destroyed Jerusalem. 40 years. Why did he say the days are coming? Why did he say that? Because just as he told Abraham that he was giving the Amorites a 400 years to repent, he gave to Jerusalem a 40-year space to repent from the crucifixion to the destruction of the city. And then after Jonah was vomited out of the big fish, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. It says that in Jonah 3, 1 through 4, where it says, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. I don't want you to miss that. God told Jonah, You preach the preaching that I put in your mouth. I'm going to tell you the words that you were to preach, and that's what you were to preach. That's what it means when it says, preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And then it says, so Jonah rose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh is an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Nineveh began to enter into the city of one day's journey, and he cried and said. And what he said was the preaching that God told him to preach. This was God's message, and the message was very simple. His message was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's what his message was. His message was not, if you repent or anything like that. He just said, 40 days and the city's going to be gone. That was the message that God told him to say. Well, if God was going to destroy Nineveh, why do that? Why did God do that? Because when he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed, and that was God's message, that in 40 years it would be destroyed. What God was doing there is he was creating for Nineveh a 40-day space to repent. It was a 40-day space to repent. Just as he gave the Amorites a 400-year space to repent, just as he gave Jerusalem a 40-year space to repent, he gave to Nineveh a 40-day space to repent. And here in our passage... He gave to the world before the flood 120 years, space to repent. And the Ninevites did repent. And that's wonderful. And it says that they believed God, and they proclaimed a fast, and they put on sackcloth. And the king did it too. He took off his robe and sat in ashes. And make a long story short, God repented. And Nineveh was not destroyed. And that's why God gives the space to repent, because he wants to not judge. So what was God doing during the time before the flood? He was looking with his eyes 
on the earth, back and forth for a wholehearted, 100% sold-out person to God. He was giving the earth a space to repent. And there's one more thing that God was doing during that time. And we see that in Genesis 3, 13 through 19, where it starts off that passage in Genesis 6, 13 through 19. And that passage starts off with these words, And God said unto Noah, God is calling to Noah. God is speaking to Noah. And this is what he's doing. God is busy. He's busy. God's very busy. Not only busy giving space to repent, he's busy going back and forth searching on the earth, and he's busy talking to Noah. And he says to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for he's filled with violence, I'll destroy them. Verse 14, he says, make this ark. And then uh, verse 17, he says he's going to bring a flood of waters. Verse 18, he says he's going to make a covenant, and everybody who gets in the ark is going to be saved. But here's what God was saying to Noah. First, number one, God announced to Noah the flood was coming. God told Noah he is going to destroy the earth. That's what God did. That's in Genesis 6.13. The end of all flesh has come before me, and he says, I will destroy the earth. That's what he said. So he announces to Noah that he's going to destroy the earth. Number two, God explained to Noah why he was going to destroy the earth. That's also in Genesis 6.13, because he said it's filled with violence and it's corrupt. Number three, God commanded Noah to build the ark. And he gave very detailed instructions for how it should be. He commanded him, in verse 14, make thee an ark of gopher wood, and he tells him all about it. And then, number four, God made a promise to Noah. He made a promise to Noah that Noah... And those that would go with Noah would be saved. That's what he said in Genesis 6, 18 through 19. But with thee will I establish my covenant. It's the first time in the Bible this word is used, breed, for covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy sons with thee, and of every living flesh, two of every sort. And the important words are to keep them alive with thee. That's the motto. To keep them alive with me. Noah could very well preach, if you believe me and you come with me, you will be saved. To keep them alive with thee. That's what God was doing before the flood. That's what the world was doing before the flood. And what was Noah doing before the flood? Well, we've already seen. Noah was being righteous before God. In other words, he was the heir of the righteousness of faith. He believed God. He moved with fear and built the ark, so therefore he had the righteousness that was accounted to him. Noah was being perfect in the sense of wholehearted. There was not a half-hearted bone in Noah's body. He was being wholehearted. That's the same word perfect that is described in Nehemiah's day when it talked about when the wall was complete. When the wall was complete around Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, it said, uses the same word, Tamim, it says it's perfect. In other words, there was no holes in it. Noah did not have a divided heart. And the other thing Noah was doing, he was walking with God, as we've seen already. It indicates a habitual walking with God. He was walking with God every day. He was steadfast. Noah was seeking God. That's how come he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It says about him in Hebrews eleven six. And when it talks about Noah, he says that he diligently sought God. He was a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That was Noah. He was faithful. He was preaching during that time. We've seen that from 2 Peter 2. He was a preacher of righteousness. That was also what Noah was doing. 
And the thing that really characterizes Noah's life is in Hebrews 11.7, it says that Noah moved with fear. He moved with fear. He was afraid. He was afraid for his family. He was afraid for his friends. He was afraid for the world. He was afraid when God said that he was going to judge the world. That's the way Noah was. And so therefore Noah was able to save his family. That's where we'll end now. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words that we learn about Noah as our example. We thank you so much, Lord, that even the world was so corrupt, so bad, that you were very busy seeking to save that which was lost. And we do pray, Lord, that in the day in which we live, that you'd help us to be like Noah, and you'd help us to also be busy seeking to save that which was lost. Thank you for hearing us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Another wonderful Bible study from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Just a reminder, if you would like to download this message for free, you can do so on our website, friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, also available on iTunes.com and SermonAudio.com. All there for free listening and free download, but it's there with your support, and we need you to become a monthly supporter if you can. You can call us at 800-247-3051. Now, we also have an opportunity for you to be a full-time missionary working for Israel Restoration Ministries in the Southern California area. We have two open positions, one in San Diego and one in Los Angeles. If you'd like to be a full-time missionary working for Israel Restoration Ministries, you can call us at our 800 number. You can also call us on the 800 number if you'd like to be a volunteer with Israel Restoration Ministries. As a volunteer missionary, you'll bring the gospel to lost Jewish people right in the city where you live, and we can help you to do that with the materials that we have that are geared towards Jewish evangelism. So call us for a full-time position or volunteer position at 800 247 3051-800-247-3051 and join Israel Restoration Ministries, 800-247-3051 or call us to donate. Again, 800-247-3051.